Hello, welcome to season three of Who You Don't See, the podcast celebrating the people behind the stars. From choreographers and stylists to makeup artists and video directors, if they're part of a celebrity's team, we are all about getting to know them. I'm your host, Megan Lawton, and this season we're taking you back to the 90s and noughties, a time of low-rise jeans, frosted lip gloss and Von Dutch caps. Our guest this week is Ray Winkler, an entertainment architect. Admittedly, that is a new one on me, but basically he's the guy who designs stages for huge world tours. And she absolutely does get involved and was involved, heavily involved in in all of the key decision-making. What's interesting about working with somebody of, of her, her caliber is the sort of the understanding of the cultural relevance beyond just the music, beyond just the stage set, beyond just the setting. That's Ray talking about none other than Beyonce and how they work together to design her iconic Coachella stage, the one that now lives on her Netflix documentary Homecoming. Ray started designing in the 90s, working with bands like The Stones and U2. Since then, he's gone on to conquer the world of pop, designing sets for Britney, Janet Jackson and most recently Adele. Since chatting with Ray, I've genuinely got a new appreciation for stages, a phrase I didn't think would ever come out my mouth. So on that note, I'll stop talking and let you enjoy the episode. Hi Ray, I'm chatting to you on, uh, is it day two of London's heatwave? <laughs> well, it seems like forever, but I'm sitting upstairs in the, uh, the loft with a nice breezy fan blowing at me. Contrary to that question, this is not a podcast about keeping cool in freak weather events. This is a podcast all about meeting the people who work behind the stars. If you were in a bar and you got chatting to people about what you do for work, what would you tell them you did? Uh, that's an interesting one. It depends, obviously, who I'd be chatting to. Um, if it was a very famous person, I might have a different chat up line than if it was somebody who wasn't. Um, but I think what we get up to, what I get up to, is a, I'm trained as an architect um, but my entire career has been spent as an entertainment architect, meaning that the skill set of an architect has sort of been shifted sideways into a realm of architectural design that um, has a sort of interesting crossover between entertainment and architecture, where the, both those two disciplines come together, merge and, and offer a, uh, an interesting job called an entertainment architect, which is everything from building theatres to designing stage shows, stadium shows, Olympic ceremonies, ship launches, television shows, everything that has entertainment involved in it and requires design. It's an outstanding job title. It's new on me, I have to say. When did you realise that job existed in the first place and that you could be an architect of entertainment? I'm not sure whether the job in its current uh, state actually existed because we pretty much created that. And, and if I may go back a little bit in in history, in that um, I studied architecture at UCL. Um, before that, I did furniture craft and management, so I had a very practical background in in building furniture. And then I got a scholarship to go to Los Angeles to Southern California Institute of Architecture, where um, we had a great opportunity to look into film sets and and sort of understand the more ephemeral nature of building in Southern California, which wasn't constrained by some of the restrictions that we have in the UK to do with weather. And throughout my 
my years as a, as a student, I was always interested in the sort of ephemeral architecture, the lightweight architecture, the architecture that could uproot itself and move from A to B and relocate itself in a completely different uh, location. And that was also partly to do with my influence of working throughout my college years with a, a company in London called Atelier One, which is an engineering company. Um, and I was the sort of there from, from my first year all the way till I graduated. And I learned a lot about lightweight engineering and they happened to be, be the um, the engineers that Mark Fisher preferred using when it came to his grandiose designs for the Rolling Stones or U2. And as circumstances, one might call it luck or misfortune, however you want to look at it, um, I got to meet Mark as my external assessor at the university when I was doing my diploma. And, um, and as a result of my encounter with him, I thought I'd stop my career just then. It didn't go very well, and I didn't feel that what I was doing was understood or appreciated. But then to my great surprise, I got hired. Um, few weeks later and have remained with Stewfish, or at that time was called the Mark Fisher Studio ever since. And in that process of joining them around 96, 97, um, I think the term entertainment architecture was coined as part of the sort of studio's own evolution into understanding what it is that we do, because we always firmly believe that what we did was architectural work. And what became clear was that a lot of people didn't quite see us as architects. In fact, what we did was often sniffed at as being rather frivolous. But I never lost sight of the fact that I am an architect. I started my career in the most exciting way by first working on U2's Pop Mart tour in 1990-something, five or six. And then right after that, I ended up working on the Rolling Stones' Bridges to Babylon which is extraordinary. So that was in quick successions. And I thought, wow, this is not bad. <laughs> hang around for a little bit. And indeed, I did hang around. And and now with over 25 years, I guess it is, um, sort of still having great fun doing some fantastic shows. You're selling it to me, right? I think I'm going to retrain. <laughs> you, <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned the, the Stones. You mentioned there you two. In your 25 years in this job, give us an idea of the catalogue of people you've worked behind because they're big, big names, but they don't stop there. Yeah, and I don't want to fall into the trap of sort of name dropping, which is very difficult when you do deal with a lot of the names. And it's important that what we provide is is a, a solid backbone to some really you know serious um, issues that these big names face when it comes to going on tour so you know a, a sort of a cursory look at our our website you know everything from acdc to the sheikh zaid foundation from you know from abba to from a to b from abba to beyonce and beyond um but we also do you know work for the olympics and we work for universal studios for disney um so we've done a lot of things and most recently you know our project in pudding mill lane in east london where we designed the building for ABBA's new show, ABBA Voyage, is a sort of a perfect example of how our skill set can migrate between many different requirements that, you know, artists of big, medium and small caliber have when it comes to wanting to realize their projects. 
out of yeah for sure you mentioned such a big range of types of projects big 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 diversity when it comes to working on the project of a star like Beyonce on a tour like the Stones how engaged are you with that artist how on board are they when it comes to talking about the architecture of the stage and how they see it looking that depends entirely on the artist and I think the strength and the beauty of the work that we do at Stewfish is that we don't have a, a template by which we pursue a particular project in the sense that we in some cases like in the case of Beyonce's you know we can work with her directly and the creative team around her and and other other projects they might have a creative team in place so it's the management that we deal with directly because the artist is sort of not particularly engaged but in the end um it's a team effort that requires you know the stoofish side of things to have a great team in place and the the reciprocal side of the other fence the you know where the artist sits has a great team in place as well and that's when the success of the story gets written it's not down to the individual client however big the name is and and, and an individual in at stoofish to sort of make that magic happen it's an awful lot of work that is done collectively and i believe that the best work is actually done when stoofish is part of the overall creative team from day one and that we understand fully what the aspirations are and we can help define with the client what the actual brief is because often you know as it is with with clients in the architectural conventional architectural world they don't quite know what it is that they want and that's why you know you go and you seek advice and and these initial conversations are are, are super helpful and, and and really really important that one doesn't have to re- reverse engineer an idea into a set of criteria that didn't exist when that idea was first formulated you know put it in sort of very simple terms if you you know as a home owner came to me and said you know i want an extension um to my house you know and you say that's great you know how much do you want to spend you know you know what is it that you want in that extension so you work through that because you might have not thought about that when you said i want an extension but in that conversation like whether it's for a house or for a set you can eke out a lot of information that is very relevant um for the client in a very relaxed atmosphere before the pressures of time and money and and you know and fabrication challenges all come to bear on it it's very important that the initial conversations are done in the spirit of exploration you know and that's and that's i think where we at stoofish we excel in our as sort of a, a nice amalgamation of sort of past experiences but future curiosities yeah i like that saying future curiosities it's like your sky high thinking that development stage you want to be thinking sky high outside the box bouncing around big ideas i want to chat to you about because i feel like a lot of people would have seen this or at least snippets of it Beyonce at Coachella it was she was the first black woman to headline the music festival that was then turned into a Netflix show as well when it comes to designing something like that where she was so I mean I didn't you tell me what she was like at the start of it but the end result was all about celebrating black cultural excellence all about sort of the US university structure where do you even begin to have chats like that at the beginning <laughs> <laughs> is it around a cup of tea Yeah, you know, English clients, European clients might be a cup of tea, Americans it's usually over a cup of coffee. We work very closely with her creative team, so she has a, you know, she has a wonderful group of people 
that she actually trusts and entrusts them with the sort of the initial brainstorming sessions. And we put in a lot of effort, a lot of background research as to what this might be. And it's a, it's a sort of, it's an iterative process. And she absolutely does get involved and was involved, heavily involved in, in all of the key decision making. Because what's interesting about working with somebody of, of her, her caliber is the sort of the understanding of the cultural ref, uh, relevance beyond just the music, beyond just the stage set, beyond just the setting of the event. Those are hugely important, hugely, hugely important. And you have to be respectful of that. And, and you also have to walk into these conversations, admitting to the fact that you actually know very little about what the actual ulterior motives behind that, because there's always a backstory to everything that you see. And, 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 you know, and as easy it is to get dazzled by the lights and the costumes and the fantastic music and the extraordinary choreography, history has been made and a story is being told that goes way beyond the sort of the veneer of glamour. And that's the important thing to understand our process when working with artists of whatever caliber there is. There's an undercurrent. There is a subset. There are, you know, like with everything else, there are nuances and shades and flavors that only come out of the process of doing it. And, you know, on that project, we produced a huge amount of dead ends. You know, we went down certain avenues because we were, as I said earlier, the sort of in the in the in, the, in this, you know, the, the excitement of seeking out, you know, sort of an unknown possibility. You know, not quite knowing what it could be, and in the end. What's great about her then, you know, she could absolutely then make a decision. This is what's going to be like. And then once you get that that direction and you've secured your North Pole, you know where you're heading and everything becomes a subset of that. And it becomes a, you know, a process where we then as architects, as the practical problem solvers kicks in and, you know, we know how big it needs to be, how deep it needs to be, how wide it needs to be, how heavy it needs to be, what it needs to look like, and how many people it needs to carry. So all of these things, as, as an architect, you just build into the design process, come to fruition here. Because you have to, at the end of the day, deliver a show that works on a multitude of levels. And when, how soon in advance do you get that, call, that phone call from Beyonce's team saying, hey, look, we've got a pretty big show coming up. We want you on board. How much time do you need? Uh, anything from too much to too little time. I mean, I can't, I seriously, I can't, I can't, there is no, it's often these decisions to join, you know, do something happen very quickly and you have to respond to it. I mean, we've, you know, we've turned around shows in maybe as, as in little as in six to eight weeks or, you know, six to eight months. And again, going back to, the interesting about that term entertainment architecture is that they work on different time cycles. You know, when you design a building, you know, like we've done theatres in China, they may be projects that run two to three years, maybe even four years, right? And they take a process that has a sort of a, a, a different gestation period to when you're dealing with a show. So, you know, Super Bowl is a good example. We've done five or six Super Bowls for everybody from the Stones to Janet Jackson to um, Britney Spears. So we've done a lot of these things and they are incredibly fast-tracked. And you might get the call three months before it happens, right? And you don't have a choice. Oh, you do have a choice. You can always say no. But, you know, in our world, it's the sort of thing that... 
you know, you don't get the opportunity to say no too often before people think you don't want the job. So, you know, our sort of default position is, yeah, of course we can do this. And and again, to go back, the reason why we feel confident is because we work with fantastic teams. Yeah, and you trust in the people around you ultimately. Absolutely. This series of Who You Don't See is kind of a zoomed out look at pop stars and what's happening in the pop culture world now, but also like how it's shifted since the 90s and noughties. You've listed that you sort of started working with U2, with the Rolling Stones. Then you had your era of your Britney's, your Janet Jackson's, more recently Beyonce's, Stormzy's. What's changed within that time? Maybe it's in terms of tech. Maybe it's in terms of what an artist, an artist now more visionary and more passionate about getting their creative messages across. What has changed is, is it's a sort of a very loaded question that, that can be answered on different levels. So technology has definitely progressed. You know, video screens have become brighter, lighter and cheaper. Sound has become much more sophisticated and more directional. Um, you know, staging has, has now has the benefit of an industry that grew up over the last three decades and knowing how to do things. So that's definitely benefited in terms of the, the, some of the scale of things that you can now do and the speed of which you can do it. What has also changed is the audience's appreciation of how this happened. So when I started, there wasn't a iPhone, there was no WhatsApp, there was no Instagram. And, you know, people lived the moment as they saw the show and there were very few ways of sort of recording it in any way. And anyway, that was dis- discouraged. And of course, with the ability of now having 50,000 points of view in a stadium with everyone equipped with a mobile phone and access to social media, the audience becomes instantly much larger than the physically present in the the, the environment, which is something that you have to take into consideration. And the sort of slightly worn out term, the Instagram moment still holds true. But what's reassuring in all of this is that uh, at the end of the day, the technology and the, the you know, might change and the audience's appreciations of how they consume and disseminate the experience has changed the world. But the core tenant for why all of this happened is still there. And we always go back to the very simple understanding that, you know, we are tribal by nature. We like to share experiences with those like-minded. And what COVID showed us when we were all locked down and we were pretending that having, you know, Zoom conferences uh was the next best thing to being in the same room at the same time is that there are so many aspects of the experience that just need to be there by you being there in the physical world. And I think the core tenant of these performances is that there is a performer who wants to perform in front of an audience and wants to get the feedback that the audience appreciates it. So when we did Adele at the Hyde Park recently, the amount of people that were out there, you know, 50,000 responding to her the way she only she can solicit was fantastic. I was one of them. <laughs> you were one of them. And you know what I'm saying, you know, absolutely an experience that you just walk away elated and you understand that all of the constituent parts have just fallen into place in a way that you could not ascribe to a single entity. It was not the sound. It was not just the lights. It was not just the look. It was not just the hair. It was not just the banter. It was not just the staging. It was the entire atmosphere that build up to the event, the fact that she was coming into town, you know, weeks of preparation, people getting excited and then the doors opening. And how many times have I stood in an arena or a stadium when the doors first open and you can just see this 
pent-up excitement of three weeks or months of emotions just focusing on that moment is when the doors open and you can enter that wonderful arena where the event is going to happen. I've got shivers. <laughs> it's it's magical and that I think that makes our, our work so special and in the end so rewarding. And you know, we always say to ourselves, we actually design for an audience. The fact of the matter that it doesn't, you know, stands up and looks nice and, you know, doesn't fall apart or, you know, transports from A to B efficiently. In the audience nobody really cares about that. What people care is the memory that they take back home. And and that's where I think that's what where our heart that's where our heart sits and that's what our soul lives for is the sort of like you you've got these memories now of this event to which Stufish played a small part of but you still you forever in your life you will take these images in your head and they will generate these fantastic emotions and that is what makes us so human and that's what makes us so uh, what i always find amazing is the sort of the vibe in the audience is always great because there is a there's a sort of um, an aff- you know affection and affiliation for sharing that common experience that bonds us in a way that you talk to people you would never do in this in the tube and there's there's something magical in that I'm really intrigued as to how the kind of emotion collides with the architecture and how you as do fish try and make that come together is is there anything about stage design that you think is more inclusive to an audience having a good time like what kind of decisions what kind of things when you're looking at stage and building a stage will you be thinking of right so you have tools that you use um like a writer might have a typewriter or a painter might have a paintbrush so these are technical implements that you can utilize how you use them is where the magic lies because on their own they are just you know, they're, they're sort of innocuous, dumb tools. And this is the same with all of the tools that we have at Stewfish and all of the knowledge that we have and the experience that we've collected. You know that at the end of the day, you need to employ the right tools that brings this thing together, that triggers the emotions, that makes this the best experience you've ever experienced. And that goes for both sides of the fence. That goes for the artist, and that goes for somebody like you who stands in that crowd with 50,000 other people, right? And... You know, we've never been about the technology for the sake of technology. It's not about, you know, nobody ever says, oh, you know, J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter on a Mac iPro 5, and therefore it's a great... That doesn't really matter. It just happens to be a tool. And we have the same thing at Stewfish, is that we have all of these fantastic things at our disposal. But on their own, they don't guarantee... The magic they don't guarantee the trigger to the emotions they don't guarantee anything beyond a delivery of a technical problem but these are not technical problems these are technical problems that underpin the desire to, to deliver emotional solutions and there's a big difference between the two so say if i looked back at adele videos like i often do i would probably look at that stage and think oh there's nothing uh, and no offense to the stage, but they didn't feel anything like abnormal about it. What kind of conversations have you had? It was obviously a beautiful stage with the tree and the, the disco lights and all of that kind of stuff. What conversations did you have? Because I felt it was quite almost quite understated and it felt really relaxed there. Was that an intentional design thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the important thing to to, and this is not just about her, this goes with all of them, is that the thing that we create is subservient to what they create i.e. it's their performance, and that goes across the entire spectrum of people that we work with. 
what we do is the, the canvas to which they get referenced against, but they can't become the focal point. So that understatement is whether it's perceived or not perceived is deliberate because what you don't want to have is suddenly that the edifice or the thing becomes the star of the show. It's always, it's the person. So is there times you'll look at stages and you're just like, oh, that's not a very classy stage, whether you've designed it or not, is there? And I, I don't know, I'm trying to think, I don't, I can't think of any bad stages I've been to. Like what, what is it an idea? Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't admit to, I don't think that there has ever been where we, we you know, we, I think there's always room for improvement. Even the most successful ones, you always look at it when you when you sort of when you when you pop out of that bubble of having been so engaged and you're so myopic and you are within this sort of you know the heat of the moment. And when that happens and you sort of step back and you look back and go, you know what? It was interesting, but maybe if we had gone down this route. And this is an important part of what I was saying earlier. There is no template at Stufish where I said, right, you know. That was a success because A, B, and C were used like that, and we left C, you know, D and E out of the equation. Therefore, if we repeat that, you know, we will repeat, replicate the success. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work any way. You know, you don't have the same conversation with the two different people and expect the same results. So each set that we design, each building that we design is built from the bottom up, meaning that it's not top down where say, if you come to Stewfish, you'll get one of these. No, when you come to Stewfish, what you'll get is a conversation as to what it could become. And then when it, once it has become, it is truly yours. We don't want to replicate the idea. What we just did for the Stones for their 60th anniversary tour is 100% just for the Stones. You wouldn't dream of taking it and saying, all right, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. You know, Popstar A and Popstar B, why don't you have one of these? You would never dream of that. And so I guess like the kind of image that comes to my mind immediately is Beyonce at Coachella on that sort of like pyramid triangle shaped formation thing. That was her and that was her performance and the message she, it was tailored to her, right? You're not going to give that to everybody. Exactly. And, and it could have only been her again because of the, her cultural references about the high school college you know get together the bands the the cheerleading that you know that whole vibe that is a hundred percent driven by her how you interpret that and that's where the role of the architect steps in is you know you can describe something quite nicely in a single paragraph but that does not necessarily translate itself into a building or a set design and you know you have to go through a series of stages and how you interpret that is then our role as entertainment architects to take a little bit of entertainment and a little bit of architecture and get that that right balance that it doesn't alienate her from the original idea but also doesn't run the risk of not being deliverable because the world is strewn with great ideas that were never delivered because they, you know, too expensive, impractical, not enough time, whatever it is. Is there an art to managing expectations and sometimes saying, great idea, but that's not physically possible to make it happen? Is there an art to saying no? <laughs> I think if you, again, if you gain the confidence of the, your client, of the artist uh, from the beginning, and you can back that up with a great track record that we have at Stewfish. When you look at, you know, our repeat clients, there are so many of them that come back to us time and time again that can go to other places. And, and you know full well that you only ever have the opportunity to do, you know, put it this way, as I often remind myself, 
you could spend an entire lifetime building up a reputation and lose it in an afternoon. That's quite so, a stressful thought to have every day. <laughs> so, well, it's not, I don't wake up in the morning and say, well, it's one of those again. No, but I'm just saying, you know, you remind yourself that the reason why they come to you is because you might not be able to deliver exactly what it is that was first talked about. And there are, if there are good reasons for that, then I think you can persuade in the conversations that that's not the best thing to do. And remember, it's not about saying no, it's about saying yes, but have you considered that? A very, very important moment turned 20 last year, Britney Spears at the 2001 VMAs where she had that snake, the seven foot python wrapped around her neck. I know you were involved in that. Do you sometimes kind of look back at your catalogue of work and projects you've been involved in and been like, whoa, I was on the front line for some pretty big moments Like you've had an integral part in lots of them? Yes, I think, you know, it's inevitably that one is very proud both as an individual but also as a as a as a studio like Stufish to have been involved in so many seminal moments and I can think of of many. If you stand back and you go, whoa, that is great. And what was interesting about the Britney show was again incredibly short time frame, r- ridiculously short time frame. And and there was a great concept that just needed to sort of be um it needed a catalyst for it to find its its uh, it's organic resolution, so to speak. You know, you you can't force something upon somebody if they don't want it. And in this case, there was an idea, and our strength as entertainment architects was to take that idea and to deliver on that idea without losing that emotive impact that it was the intention of the idea to have on the audiences. And I think we we you know we because you could describe it as one thing. You could describe, okay, there were like three revolving cages. They were made out of aluminium and one of them had to hold the tiger. If you describe it that way, well, that's a bit boring. But when you describe it from the evocative and there was a snake and there was Brittany and there were the references to the, the loss of innocence and, you know, and all of that slave for you and all that sort of stuff comes out of it. Then you go, well, it wasn't about the aluminium. It wasn't about the cloth it wasn't even about the tiger it was about what in german called the gesamtkunstwerk where all of the constituent parts come together and create this most beautiful mosaic that you look back and go "Mm, that was pretty cool so cool i I mean the fact that so many people still watch that video the fact that so many women dress up as britney in that outfit for halloween over 20 years (laughs) on it it was a moment yeah yeah in terms of i know you've designed a lot for male artists you work with Stormzy the Stones you've also worked with a lot of female artists Britney Beyonce Adele is there a difference do you think in what pop stars want to put out what message they do for like women is sex appeal really important and does that factor into stage design well we like to design things that look sexy yeah um, because they always look good on camera um I think they're often you know it's it's I don't know if it's a it's a sort of a binary male female sensibility gap or difference there's also um, a sensibility difference in in the genre of music. You know, is it pop? Is it rock? Is it hip hop? Is it, you know, is it a combination of? And we just did an extraordinary, opened an extraordinary show in, in Salamanca in Spain last week with Rosalia. Uh, Very sexy. An, an incredible artist. An incredible artist who has surrounded herself with an incredible team of people who are devoted to delivering the best show for her. And we were really, really privileged to 
I've worked with her. And the sensibilities that came out of those conversations were clearly driven by a young female hybrid fusion between very strong roots in Spanish flamenco and culture and a huge homage to much more contemporary music come together with some extraordinary choreography and some beautiful image selection. And those are sensibilities you just would not find if you were to speak to, you know, they would not be appropriate to, you know, to the Stones or to you too. So you have to, you really have to read between the lines. And this is again where it's important to see us as working with the team from the, from the bottom up. And does that then involve having conversations with the hair and makeup, with costume? Because, again, so much about the visual is you don't want that artist or all their dancers to look at odds with the stage they're on. Is it mad sometimes that architecture, you're talking with those kinds of people? No, I think it's important that you do. Cirque du Soleil have a very nice system when we did, when we worked with Cirque. Of, you know, we, we did Carr, we did Elvis, we did Chris Angel and we've done a lot of shows with them where from day one, you know, choreography, makeup, uh, costume, lighting, rigging, staging, we're all in the room together from day one. And, you know, the conversations were really, really important because what they understood very, very well, that at the end of the day, that big mosaic that you look at is actually made out of all these individual constituent parts, right? That each one on their own has very little meaning or impact, but when seen together and from a distance become what they are and they become so enticing and beautiful and they draw you into that world. And so we would have these fantastic conversations where, you know, I was asked to comment about the costumes or, you know, the makeup and, and 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 vice versa in a spirit of that sort of being adventurous and excited about what others how others saw the world because you know i go through the world and i see it my particular way but when you ask people what do you think and they come from a completely different perspective that's when it becomes interesting and if you understand and learn that at the end of the day again it's triggering those emotions that make somebody like you walk away from an event having something that you will forever cherish in your mind in your heart in your soul and for, i would dare say makes you a better person as a result because you've experienced something that's really touched you yeah poster delmi i'm happy with i love poster delmi <laughs> that's the joy of of doing what we do is there are so many people who contribute to the success of these that we could never ever step back and say you know that's down to stewfish or that's down to me as the individual at stewfish which you know goes for the projects that Stewfish does, but also within Stewfish, you know, an important factor of it is that, you know, it is a team of people who are hugely talented and very motivated and have a really good sense of what's current, you know, what works, what doesn't. I feel like every workplace could benefit with sitting in one of your meetings as to how to really collaborate. Yeah, well, <laughs> I would caution you on that because <laughs> those could be very long meetings and they could be quite intense as well. I can imagine those moments. When you look back over all the, the big projects you've worked on, the stages you've worked on, the festivals you've done, is it possible to pick, to cherry pick a favorite one? Is there one project that always stands out to you? Yeah, that'd be like asking who's my favorite child, and that would be really unfortunate and difficult to. But you know, deep down, you have one. <laughs> I know deep down inside there are there are moments that where you know there are different categories in which you can. Um, 
describe these as. So from a sort of a, uh, you know, from a, from a location point of view, um, doing a big show for the millennium in front of the pyramids of Giza, I would say, you know, top on my personal list. Those are moments you can never describe. And even if you tried to film them, you would never get the essence of what they're. So these little moments, these little snippets of just sheer power in the music and, and, and the, the setup. Difficult choice, but there are definitely moments like what you mentioned earlier, you know, the Britney thing where you just sit there and think this is relevant, Coachella, this is amazing. But, you know, going back where you didn't have the benefit of experience, you sitting there in Las Vegas and you're looking at this Pop Mart set and you go, wow, this is amazing. But you have no reference point because you've never done something like that. Right. So you mentioned off days. What is a bad? We all have bad days in the office. What's a bad day at work for you? There's, you know, there's a lot of factors that influence what we do where we have no control over. Um, And I think COVID and the pandemic um, showed us really who was in control. And so when you're really working hard to deliver something to its highest expectations and there are issues with getting things on time or the technology not working or so where you, you know, you, you clearly haven't achieved what you set out to do, then I would say that's a sort of, you know, you, you, you feel for it. You feel for it because you're so passionately involved in this. And passion is, you know, something that runs deep through my veins is that you really want to give everything that you can. And, and the thing I've learned of, of, of growing up in the industry and, and, and the benefit of hindsight and experience is that, you know, try to hold on to the things that you have control over and do the best with those, but don't hold it against anybody, particularly yourself, if the things that you have no influence over come to bite you back. Yeah, that's nice. I think we can all get on board with that. And then to flip it so we can end this on a high, what is a day at work for you that is just like a Bobby Dazzler of a day, everything's gone to plan? Going back into the studio and seeing the buzz of the people that I work with, clients, my colleagues, my friends, you know, and just seeing this is really what life is about. It's 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 motivational to be around people who share the passion with you, share the vision and share the energy to really do the best that they can. And I couldn't ask for more. I imagine, say, like pre-Adele or pre the first night of the Stones tour, there's really special moments when the band are getting ready to go live all your hard work is pretty much done by that point. You're just ready to see it come to life. That must be quite a fulfilling moment. I was in Madrid for the opening of the Stones and I was in the stadium with, I don't know, 60,000 people. And you stand there and you, you look around and you say, this is extraordinary to be part of something that is 60 years old in which 20 year old people sing songs that are precede them by 40 years and know every every word of that song and you look around and you go that is magic but to stand there and go i was part of this is that's a big buzz and then the people around you that you've worked with so hard to get this delivered and there's a huge you know everybody from the production manager to the lighting designer to people at the, the mixing board you know to the caterers we've all worked really hard to make this happen and for most of the people in the audience, they would not have an idea what sits behind it. And I suppose that's the topic of your... Who your, you don't uh, see. You sold it for me right there. <laughs> Who you don't see, yeah. Makes the world turn in mysterious ways. 
For sure, magic ways, most magic ways. Ray, thank you so much for talking. You've been, been you. a star. Thank you. Thank you so much. A big, big thank you to Ray for chatting. If you want to keep up with his stage designs, you can head to his company page, Stewfish, on Insta. If you're still listening, I also want to say a big thanks to you too. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please leave us a little review, maybe send it to a mate and subscribe to Who You Don't See on your usual podcast app. You can also pay us a visit next week when I'll be chatting to Danilo Dixon, the man responsible for Gwen Stefani's hair. We talk space buns and maintaining that platinum blonde. I'll see you then.